was an ad posted about two years ago in a New York newspaper that's an ice arena called Barclays Center was looking to hire an assistant manager of arena operations to quote help with planning and implementation of associated work tasks. Now when some uh, individuals came and, and uh, put in their application and learned more about the job, they found out what this really meant was that the pro hockey team, the New York Islanders, needed a new Zamboni driver. Planning and implementation of associated work tasks, indeed. But cleaning the ice of an arena, apparently, is far more difficult than it looks. I've often thought, when I've been at hockey games, if that guy would just get off, I could jump on the Zamboni machine, looks like fun, I could do the work, no problem. But according to the New York Times, cleaning the ice in an arena is much more difficult than you would think. A Zamboni is not a golf cart. The team is not looking for just anyone. The ad says the job requires five years behind the wheel of an ice resurfacer, three years working in a hockey arena, and a college degree. And it says that the candidates must be able to walk, sit, and, quote, use hands to finger, handle, or feel objects. They must also be able to, quote, balance, stoop, kneel, crouch or crawl, talk or hear, taste or smell. You can talk or hear, taste or smell, one or the other. The ad also mandates close vision. So if you are detail-oriented, can lift and or move up to 75 pounds and have a passion for creating an exceptional experience, they suggest this may be your dream job. Now, that kind of ad strikes us as a little bit charming and funny because the idea of the guy getting on the Zamboni machine and going back and forth, having to have this like special forces background in ice resurfacing, I don't know, we never would have thought that way, and yet, when you are a professional hockey team, you're only as good as the ice you're skating on. This would be incredibly important. Only those who really knew the game and had experience would recognize how important this Zamboni machine operator was and the gifts, the skills, the experiences that would be needed. And I think we see something similar in Ephesians 4 as we read about how God, in giving his gifts to individuals in the church, has specialized in so many ways for so many tasks that so many people would not assume to be vital and yet are vital to the operation of the church. Now, we had been studying Ephesians, we took a break for Advent, and I'm just going to admit I took a break because I just needed a break from Ephesians. I had done something silly. Way back in chapter 2, I blew all my best church unity illustrations, and then I was like, oh yeah, another sermon on church unity, another passage on church unity, another, and, and it got a little redundant, I thought. But now as we come back into the text here in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul is showing us something new here. That the unity in the church is not the kind of uniformity that our culture has lately been demanding. Uniformity of view, uniformity of how we speak and what we understand, lest you be silenced and canceled and all these things. It's not the kind of reformatting of the mind and making everyone into a clone of the leader that many religions promote. Rather, it's a unity that is filled by God's very design with great diversity. We've seen that throughout the book of Ephesians where the central theme seems to be that two different peoples, Jews and Gentiles, have been made into one new people. 
We also see throughout the New Testament that there is not male and female and slave nor free, that in the church, every person of every class, every nation, tongue, and tribe comes together as one. But here we also see that even within a Christian congregation that seems to be completely one type of person, monochromatic in every way, composed of people from the same background, same lifestyle, same community, maybe even the same bloodline. You know, some of these rural churches and small towns is almost a family affair. You might think, well, we've just got a repeat of the same guy, the same person 15 times or 35 times or whatever, that even in such a congregation, God still brings in the diversity as he equips us to equip each other. God brings a diversity of gifts. And I think what we saw here in verses 4 through 6 was perhaps the climax of this building emphasis on the unity in Christ. It's often been called the sevenfold unity. If you look at your Bible, look at verses 4, 5, and 6 while I read them, and count, use your fingers if you have to, sometimes I do, there's no shame, count how many times you see the word one. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And if you're sharp, you said, I'm not going to bother to count because you already told me it was a sevenfold unity, so I know there's seven. But yes, yeah, seven meaning completion, perfection in the biblical parlance. This total unity that we are to have in Christ is being pictured here. Now, it's not overly clear in your English Bible, but Paul does something a little bit clever here in that he starts verse 7 also with the word one. So we had it seven times in verses 4, 5, and 6, and the emphasis was on the unity, the one body, the one church, that there are not a bunch of splinters, that, that Christ does not have a harem, he has a bride. But then he begins verse 7, again with the word one. In the Greek, it's heni, heni de acosto hemon. It means, but to each one of us is given. He's transitioning into a new spin on the word one, on the idea of one. Yes, we're all called into one body, but each one is still an individual with his or her own abilities and personality and gifted particularly with different gifts for different purposes. Also, we see this shift in how verse 6 repeats that word all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then in our passage for today, you really see this in the King James, where instead of all, it's some. He gave some apostles, some prophets. We've gone from all to some, 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 and some. So the all is made up of individuals whom God created to be individuals and whom God is gifting as individuals because redundancy, as we found when I kept having to preach sort of the same thing, it has its place, but it, it's kind of a waste most of the time. I mean, you've got two churches on one corner. That can be good if there's great diversity. They're very different churches and we'll draw in different people. But if it's First Baptist Church and no, we're First Baptist Church. We just split in 1892. That's a waste. You're redoubling efforts when you could join together and you could get more done for the kingdom. This makes me think also of Christian services. I've served in ministry contexts where every church was trying to do everything for everyone. Everyone had a little uh, diaper center. Everyone had a, a little food closet. Everyone had a little clothes closet. Everyone, try, everyone tried to do everything. 
And then I come to Lansing and I find there's this thing called Lansing Christian Services where we each take one area and the church, the one church of Jesus Christ, says we'll, we'll clothe children here at the Love Clothing Center. They'll provide formula and diapers over here. Over here is, uh, you know, you come over here for the, the financial training classes. All these different things that different churches are doing. And it's, I think, a great illustration of how God equips and gifts different people for different ministries within the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. That diversity and unity. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. And in the New Testament, over and over again, St. Paul especially refers to the church as the body of Christ. And there is deep meaning in that. But one of the aspects of it that Paul leverages for teaching is that bodies are made up of different parts, different members, different organs that each have a different role to play. And if somehow a body started getting confused so that the eye thought that it was supposed to do the work of the toenail, that'd be bad. And if the body rejected one part, that happens sometimes, and if a body turns against itself, that's called an autoimmune disease, and it's caused for great concern, and it has to be treated. The unity that we have in the church is unity of purpose, unity of effort, unity of spirit, but not unity of function. Romans 12, in talking about being a body, Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So to each one is given. What is given? Well, grace. If you don't know, I don't want to assume you do, grace is unmerited favor. It's the whole bedrock of our religion, our understanding of what it means to have a relationship with God, to be saved, that you cannot work your way into God's good graces because grace is not something that respects our work, and our work could never be adequate. Rather, we have salvation freely given to us because of who God is, not who we are, because of what Christ did despite what we have done to try and become righteous on our own. So what does it mean then when we read that God gives grace to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift? We're not talking about different levels of saving grace here because that wouldn't make any sense at all. Either you are saved or you are not. Either you are justified and declared righteous in God's sight by grace through faith or you are not but because grace is all unmerited favor, all undeserved or unearned kindness, everything we receive from God is a grace, including spiritual gifts. In fact, there's a, a tight connection there, even in the language. The word for grace in the Greek is charis. The word for gift is charisma. You've heard that before? That's where we get our word charisma, charismatic. So out of the chorus, the grace, comes the charisma, the gift, an expression of that grace. Now I want you to promise to stay with me here for a minute, because we've got to chew through something, and it's a little bit chewy. 
Because in verse 8, Paul kind of shows his work, which is something that he tends to do. And he does it by pointing us back to the Old Testament. Therefore, it says, the it here is Psalm 68, 18. If it's not written in a, a footnote in your Bible, you may want to jot that down. Psalm 68, 18 is what he's quoting. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68 is a psalm of triumph that King David wrote long, long before this. And in writing it, we think he probably was celebrating when they had taken Jerusalem from the Jebusites, which is going to become their capital, is this wonderful city that is so central to Judaism and Israel's identity as a nation and all the rest. And so it's a, a great ascending triumph. And then in verses 9 and 10, there's this parenthetical where he explains how this applies to us as Christians. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. The one who descended, that's a reference to the incarnation, not too far from Christmas. God coming down, becoming man and dwelling amongst us. Also ascended. Now in the scriptures, the idea of ascent is closely tied to the idea of approaching God, to worship God. In fact, you would physically ascend to go up into the temple, which was built on Mount Zion right there in Jerusalem. And as they would go up, there were 15 psalms that they called songs of ascent that they would sing as they prepared their hearts to also ascend and go up into God's presence. Well, here we see that after the cross, after descending, and even descending into the grave, Christ himself ascended victorious in glory, leading his people in a parade behind him and sharing with them the spoils of his victory in the form of these gifts. Now, many translators will follow the King James in translating this, that he led captivity captive. And I've always liked that, the idea that Christ put death to death and took captivity captive. And it is a very wooden translation of the Greek words that are there. Others, most new translations, say something like, like this, uh, that he, he led a host of captives. And then you might ask yourself, who are these captives in this picture? Well, some would say they're demons, principalities, rulers of the darkness of this age. Certainly they have factored in and will factor in to the book of Ephesians, and that is possible. But I'm increasingly convinced that in this picture of Christ having died and rose again and ascended, now leading captives and sharing gifts, we're not the triumphant army that came with him to help win the victory. That doesn't make sense. Rather, we are the ones taken captive. That in a sense, when Christ came, he defeated not only sin, death, and Satan, but us. Our sin nature, the old Adam, the old Eve, that would stand and rebel and rail against him and say, I don't want what you have to offer. His love overcame us. And now we are the captives in this train. The normal thing to do in the ancient world after a great victory, it would be to have a, a military parade of ascent like this with the king or the emperor kind of up front with his guard, and then you'd have all these officers and soldiers. Then there'd be a huge sampling of the gold and spoil they had collected when they ransacked the, the people that they had conquered. And then way in the back, humiliated and crushed, would be a group of captives. And as they were led through, the people would, you know, chuck rotten vegetables at them and pelt them with rocks and, and shout and heckle them. Not so with Christ. He descended. 
He defeated us at the cross in order that we might share in his victory. And now, as he ascends, we are the ones who receive the gifts from his spoils, starting with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as the conquering king is giving gifts to his faithful subject, like any king, his expectation is, we'll use those gifts for the glory of the king and his kingdom. Not for our own ends, not to build our own names or our own little kingdoms. And I truly believe that the standard way in which American evangelical churches, especially when you read all the literature and buy the kit and try and implement this or that program, the way that people are being encouraged in their churches to operate misses this entirely. Churches are often now pyramid schemes where the thing that everyone is working toward is a particular pastor's vision or a brand or this new campus and that new project. And yes, we say these things are all for the glory of God, but it's very easy when you put something else at the top to miss that glory of God. Especially when the methods that are being employed are simply business strategies and worldly marketing campaigns. Now, worldly methods can achieve great results if we focus on earthly goals, sure, but to what points and advantage? What we're promised here is very different. Spiritual gifts, which can therefore yield supernatural results. Jesus talks about bearing fruit 30, 60, even 100-fold. This is if we think in kingdom terms. It also means that it won't necessarily be numerical growth within the church where the gifts are being exercised, perhaps going out and ministering and sowing seed elsewhere. But the church growing and growing in maturity is what we have in view here. And everyone has a gift, to bring it right back to the first word of the whole passage. To each one is given grace, gifts, according to the measure of Christ. To each one. I don't care who you are, if you're born again, you have a spiritual gift. Maybe it's not quite been developed. Maybe you need to, to work on it and discern what it is, but you have one. And I don't care if there are 15 people in the church or 1,500 people. God is most pleased when the people are using their gifts, when all the people are using their gifts faithfully, when, when the, the engine is firing on all cylinders. Because when it's not, that's when you get the kind of chitty-chitty-bang-bang, jalopy kind of church effect. And I think we've all seen what can happen where churches and fits and starts, certainly never here, but sometimes, you've heard of it maybe, kind of take a long time to accomplish very little because few people are trying to propel the thing forward. Pastors can actually get in the way of all this happening. By the way, this passage is the only reference in the whole New Testament to pastor as a church office. I'm increasingly convinced that a flock-sized church is the biblical ideal so that a pastor can pastor the flock and a group of elders can shepherd a flock. Pastor and shepherd are synonyms. However, part of pastoring is to feed you and help you discern your gifts and get plugged in to use your gifts. You often hear spoken about, in, in many organizations, but very often in churches, the 80-20 rule. 80% 80 of the people do 20% of the work. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And I've heard pastors say, no, it's more like 20-100. 20% of the people that are very involved do all the work, and then a bunch of people do nothing. 
But if that's true, that means that the average church could be 80% more effective if their gifts were discerned and people were serving. And as I said, pastors can actually work against this God-ordained order, either by guilt, saying, well, these people pay me to do all this stuff, so I'll do all this stuff, and then they don't have to. I'd feel weird if I, I was paid to do this job, and then I said, all right, now let me show you how you can do it. Or by pride. I want to be completely indispensable. I want you to know that without me, you'd be in huge trouble. Ironically, when we fall into this trap, we're showing ourselves to be the opposite of indispensable. We're the computer chip that keeps the engine from firing on all cylinders because we're all wonky. Now in verse 11, Paul breaks down these gifts into five categories. These are not exhaustive by any means. There's no exhaustive list of spiritual gifts in the Bible. All right, maybe write that down if you didn't already know that. In fact, in 1 Peter 4.11, he talks about all spiritual gifts in just two categories, those who speak and those who serve. There are five other lists, some of them short, some of them long, some broad, some very specific, but no two lists are the same, and none contains every conceivable gift. We heard a passage from Exodus 35 earlier in the service in which God talks about those who had been gifted as metal workers and craftsmen to go and create these things that were going to be part of the temple worship, the vessels in the temple and the like. There's a guy, Bezalel, who was a, a bronze worker. And you think, that's a spiritual gift? Well, in that case, it was. It's not in any of the lists, but certainly it was. And now, perhaps there are some who work in bronze, but there are things that people are gifted to do that didn't exist back then. I think a lot of churches discovered who was gifted in computers and such about March or April of 2020. A vital, necessary part of ministry and church life suddenly needed people who were gifted in that area. But this list, I think, is different from all the others in that it doesn't list the gifts themselves by name, rather the office or role in which these gifts are exercised. There are five functions listed here that God calls and gifts people to carry out for His glory. <clears throat> Let's look at each of them briefly. First of all, apostles. Now we have to ask ourselves what is meant here by apostles. The word apostolos, that's easy to remember, is used in two different ways in the New Testament. And I often say that it's capital A Apostle and lowercase a Apostle, even though in the original all the letters were capital. The distinction I'm making is between a formal and a less formal title. The formal title is the Twelve Disciples, the Apostles, about which it's written in Revelation 21 that the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve Apostles of the Lamb. These 12 apostles are a foundation on which the church is built up. There are no more of those. Okay, there, there were 12. If you, your very special dream was always to be one of those apostles, I'm sorry, you can't do it. Even though in certain denominations, different traditions, one might say our pope or our leader or our metropolitan sits in the seat of Peter and has the same authority. No, he doesn't. Or there are 12 living apostles, so-called, in the Mormon church, and yet they also are not in this seat. Certain uh, Pentecostal preachers often declare themselves to be in that office of capital A, apostle. 
in this sort of authoritative, speaking on God's behalf kind of way, while shooting from the hip. If that's what he means, this capital A apostle, I guess we can skip this section because we don't have to worry about whether or not we're called to that. In fact, I've seen commentaries that skip the first three. They say, no more apostles, no more prophets. Oh, an evangelist was like an assistant to the apostle, so that's not needed anymore. Let's get right to the pastors and teachers. But hold up. The word apostolos is also used in the New Testament in a more general way to mean missionary. This is a term that is ascribed to Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Junia, and others. And that makes perfect sense, considering that the word apostolos simply means one sent out. Missionaries are those sent out. And you say, how do you know that really means missionary? Well, there's lots of mission work in the New Testament. Look up the word missionary in your concordance. You won't find it. Not in your ESV, your NIV, your NASB, your King James, none of these. They don't have the word. Instead, they use the word apostle in this way. There are different ways in which one can be sent out. And some are called to do this work. Some are called to go overseas. I think of Adoniram Judson or Jenny Pazinski. People who go sent out and away off into the distance, like St. Paul himself, to go and bring the name of Jesus to those who have never heard it in a distant land. Or there are others right here in town, friends of mine like Noah Philippiak, guys like DJ Knox who've planted churches in Lansing saying there are people that can be reached right here. I'm sent out even in a local setting. The, the whole idea, I think, is wrapped up in the attitude of here am I, send me, like Isaiah said to God as he was commissioned. Hey, that segues nicely to the second one. Prophets. This one also, you might be tempted to skip and say, well, I don't think we've got any prophets in, in our uh, church, despite all those emails that we're always all getting from Richard. But even in the Old Testament... The prophets were not primarily people telling the future with a crystal ball. The, the cliche is that prophecy in the Bible is 90% forth-telling and maybe 10% foretelling. Meaning 10% telling the future, saying what will come to pass, and 90% simply saying, thus saith the Lord. He already said it. Just start doing it. The Lord's not happy with you because here's what he said, and here's what's happening. The prophets often come in that role. And the church has often filled that sort of prophetic, uh, prophetic forth-telling role in society when gifted individuals stand up against injustice, stand up for the least of these, the forgotten, the oppressed, following in Jesus' own footsteps, that's a prophetic mantle. And that is a gift of the Spirit. I think a great example of this is William Wilberforce. He never made a prophetic prediction on such and such a date slavery will cease to exist in England, but he said God is not pleased with this, and he prophetically proclaimed God's truth and worked tirelessly to make that truth a reality where and when he lived. He was working on behalf of the church, outward kind of toward the world. And this sort of forth-telling can also be of benefit inwardly to the congregation. In fact, in the New Testament, we read about church members sharing prophecies in the worship service, which are then weighed by the people against the Scriptures. Now, the question remains, are there foretelling, predicting the future kind of prophets today? That is a can of worms, a big can of worms. In fact, it's actually labeled can of worms, but when you open it, 
it's, it's more of a, a powder keg. There are faithful Christians on both sides of the debate, but I'm just going to tell you, I believe, yeah, yes, there are. I don't, I don't know why there wouldn't be. I have heard, read, considered, and studied all of the arguments, biblical arguments, that certain gifts have ceased to be suddenly, and I find all of them lacking very much. That's just me. Recently, while we were studying the Bible together, uh, Alex, uh, police, brought to my attention uh, a story from, from Spurgeon, the most Baptist of all Baptists' life, in which he describes a certain prophetic office that he held, even though I think he considered himself one of these cessationists who didn't believe in prophecy. He didn't call it prophecy, but this is what he said. While preaching in the hall on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, there's a man sitting here who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last sun Sabbath morning. He took nine pence in, and there was four pence profit from it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. Now, we might think that's a little over the top, sold the soul to Satan for four pence because he had his shop open on Sunday. But the man who heard that, and it described him perfectly, got saved because he heard that considered the gospel, went and met with Spurgeon and was led to the Lord. Another occasion, uh, <laughs> this is even better, Spurgeon pointed at a young man in his audience and said, young man, those gloves you are wearing have not been paid for. You have stolen them from your employer. And after the service, the guy came to him and begged him, don't tell my boss, I'll give them back. I don't know how you know, but... Spurgeon wrote that there were at least a dozen similar situations in which he, he pointed out someone in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person, prompted by the Holy Spirit, only to have that truth later confirmed to him. He called these impressions from the Holy Spirit. This may be also a way in which the gift of prophecy works. I have not found myself to have it. Sometimes I just randomly try that. Like there's somebody here who owes me 40 bucks. Maybe you do and I forgot. I don't know. It just You have to have it or it doesn't work. And that is, I think, why the word some is so important here and why the diversity is so important here. Because like all gifts, this can't be about self-aggrandizement. And in the Old Testament, the test of a prophet, it's simple and it's severe. We read it in Deuteronomy 18. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not pay him any heed. Do not be afraid of him. In fact, a couple of verses earlier, we're told that someone who prophesies falsely or prophesies in the name of another God is stoned to death. That was in the Old Covenant setting. In the New Testament, you simply pay them no heed. And so in late March, when Kenneth Copeland stood on television and said, standing in the office of the prophet of God, I execute judgment on you, COVID-19. I call you done. I call you gone. It is finished. It is over. And the United States of America is healed and well again, saith the Lord Jesus Christ. COVID-19, you are destroyed forever and you will never be back. Okay, just don't need to listen to that guy anymore. I could have told you that before March, but now it's confirmed. Some as prophets. And when this happens, they can never be trying to step into the spotlight. That's not how these gifts work. In fact, that is such a red flag that we could probably assume right off the bat that if it's self-aggrandizing, if it is, it is a hand saying, oh, it's so much more glorious to be up there on the face. If only I could be the smile. I remember when I was playing Little League Baseball, I so badly wanted to be a pitcher. 
And, and uh, I don't know why this strikes me as sad now, but I asked my dad to buy me one of these things, and he bought it. It was like a net, and you'd throw it, and if you hit it right in the strike zone, it would come right back to you. There was like springs around. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's called a pitchback machine. Yeah, I, and I did that, I mean, every day, over and over and over and over and over again. And one day I begged the coach, put me in, put me in, and, and you know... <laughs> If, if you're way ahead and the coach puts you in, that's one level of confidence. If you're so far behind you could never catch up and the coach puts you in, that's a whole other thing. And that's what was going on. We were way behind. He said, okay, Zach, have at it. And it was a disaster. And you know what I realized that day? I'm not a pitcher. You know what I realized shortly thereafter? I was a really good catcher. But the catcher, you know, his mask obscures his face. And he's crouched in behind him. Where's the glory? Well, you know what? I was carrying out the gift that I had for the team so that I could actually help us win, not try and make myself look like a big shot. Thirdly, evangelists. This passage does not relieve you from duty of uh, proclaiming the gospel uh, of sharing what Jesus has done for you, of telling people that there is life in Christ. You may be thinking, oh, it says here, some are evangelists, some are not then, and I'm not, so I'll just leave it to the people who are given that gift. No, the Great Commission is for all of us. All of us are called to make disciples. Now, maybe your primary role in making disciples is not in reaching the lost, although you still have the obligation to do that, but in taking a new convert under your wing and helping them walk more and more in the, the light of the Scriptures and along the narrow path. Perhaps that's the case. But you are called to fulfill that Great Commission. No, what's going on here is not what people are thinking when they say, oh, I think evangelists, they're, they're mostly professionals. They're ordained people. They're the Billy Grahams of the world. And yet, as we studied the book of Acts, do you remember who was the only person who was called an evangelist? It wasn't Peter. It wasn't John, these great preachers. It was Philip. And not even the Philip who was one of the twelve, but Philip the deacon. The guy who was just walking along the road listened when the Holy Spirit gave him that impression that said, go talk to that guy, the guy in the chariot reading the scroll, and said, I guess I'll go talk to him, and led him to faith in Jesus Christ. Some in an African-American uh, tradition, churches will actually ordain evangelists and set them apart. And I've always loved that. I remember there was a woman when I worked uh, in the store, family Christian store, before I moved to the home office. She would come in once a month, maybe. Every time she would give me her card, it said her name, comma, evangelist. And after I sold her whatever she was getting, she'd say, hey, I know you work at a Christian store. And I know I've asked you before, but do you know Jesus? Not in an obnoxious way, not in a I know something you don't, but in just out of zeal for the gospel and, and concern for the souls of everyone around her. And oh my goodness, she had the gift of evangelism. So her role then in the church was to help equip others to do the work of evangelism, even as they watched her to be inspired and learn kind of by praxis. She helped them to commit themselves to that work as well. One thing that 2020 canceled, I don't know if you noticed a lot of things got canceled, was evangelism training that I had planned for us. It had been some years since we had done training for teachers or evangelism training, that sort of thing. I am determined that, God willing, we will be doing that this year because it is such an important aspect of life as a church and perhaps something that we have talked about a lot but not done as much and that I perhaps haven't equipped you to do. Four, pastors. Or it's often translated shepherds. Again, it's the same word. 
These are overseers and the elders of a church, certainly, who are called to ministry as under-shepherds under Jesus Christ, whom Peter calls the great shepherd of the sheep. You're a sheep who's also a shepherd. It's an awkward situation sometimes, but we make it work. This is not limited to people who have pastor or reverend before their name. I think many deacons have this gift of shepherding. Because a shepherd often has to go and find the sheep that wandered away or pick up the sheep that is hurt and tends to their wounds and have a, a tender, kind heart to bring them back to the fold while also being willing to fiercely protect. That's a shepherd's heart. Fifthly, teachers. This is a broad category. Now, all pastors are teachers. In the list of elders' qualifications in the New Testament, able to teach is one of them. But not all teachers are pastors or elders, certainly. And little makes me sadder in the church today than a situation in which a church can't find people willing to teach. Whether it's to teach a children's class or an adult class or a, lead a, a Bible study or, or to, to teach discipleship classes, Sunday school, whatever the case. We're always one generation away from losing the gospel. And we have to remember that. And, and teaching children and adults alike is a way to protect against that. Now we know, we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Still, we must take this very seriously and count the cost and look at what the enemy is doing and how we must be all the more zealous. This also is part of the Great Commission, remember? Go to all nations, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And yet, just like with evangelism, some people are particularly gifted in this area, and they are vital to the church and precious to the church, and they're willing to take on a higher standard of judgment, according to James 3.1. And I, I always kind of grimace when I hear anybody in a church setting say, look, we need someone to teach that fourth grade class. Even if you're not good at teaching, just suck it up and do it. Take one for the team. Careful. Count the cost. Higher standard. Huge responsibility. Let's have everyone say to themselves, am I called and gifted for this? And pray for workers for the harvest field. In verse 12, he then sums up what the point is of all of these things. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The word translate equipped there has less to do with giving people a collection of tools to maybe even a collection of skills. It refers to refreshing and repairing something. The King James translating perfecting, I think, is a good translation. John MacArthur writes this, This word refers to restoring something to its original condition or its being made fit or complete. In this context, it refers to leading Christians from sin to obedience. And so someone who's got the gift of being an evangelist or an apostle once sent out or a shepherd or whatever, the goal is not necessarily that I have to sit you down and say, here's how you can do what I do just like I do. That often doesn't work, that kind of attempting to replicate a bunch of clones, right? Diversity and unity. Rather, it has to do with helping people walk more into obedience given the gifts and personality and who they are and who God made them to be. And in this diversity of gifts, the unity of the church is not only maintained but strengthened 
more and more if we exercise these gifts, as Paul says in verse 13, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The exercising of gifts leads away from unity, then, if it creates factions, if it makes a competitive situation, well, these gifts are being used toward exactly the opposite goal of what God ordained. I've heard of churches, in fact, I've known family members who were in churches where the kind of race to become elder was about as contentious as the 2020 presidential campaign. And it was a popularity concert, and it was all this stuff going on. That is so far off what Jesus intended that it's not even on the same playing field. If it is, it's running toward your own goal with your own ball. We serve the body, which means we serve each other. And because we're the body of Christ, in serving each other, we serve Christ. We serve the Lamb on the throne. In a sense, then, each of the gifts that we're given is kind of a spotlight. I remember watching the church musicals happen up on the chancel when I was a real little kid, too young to be in them. And in our church, Essexville Baptist Community Church, on a couple of these, are these buttresses, whatever they are, were uh, mounted two spotlights. I remember Chris Metzger, who was the pastor's son, who was a few years older than me, and Eric Asel always got to stand on the heater and work the spotlights. And I always thought, oh, that would be a cool job. That, that looks really cool. They got to shine the light right on whatever was supposed to be your focal point. Well, that's what a spiritual gift is. Working the spotlight. And it is a great job. And when it is aimed at Jesus himself, it's being used correctly. If it's aimed anywhere else, it's not. And if we're trying to stand in the spotlight as we exercise our gifts, we have stolen something from our Creator and Savior. And God who gave these gifts can take them away. Remember in the book of Revelation, if churches are unfaithful, what is removed from His midst? The churches are pictured as lamps on lampstands. If the light is not shining in the right direction, these gifts are not being used. It's malpractice. There's to be used for building up the body. Whether you're a pastor, a deacon, an elder, a teacher, an apostle, a prophet, whatever the case, whatever your form of service, the goal must never be to keep people under you, dependent on you, but always to build people up to full maturity. It's something I think pastors need to continually remind themselves of. Now, because of the administration of the sacraments and all sorts of other things, I don't think a pastor could ever make himself completely superfluous. But he ought to be trying to get a little closer to that every day. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, we read, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone, in whom this whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is how that happened, by the exercising of gifts. And the goal of every church ought to be mature adulthood in the words that Paul uses here. Not spiritual childhood. We want to be childlike in our faith, but we want to be mature in our thinking. Not awkward adolescence where we're chasing after fads and trends every day. Not some sort of false confidence like a sophomore who thinks he knows everything but has really just begun to scratch the surface. Rather, the maturity of knowing how far short we fall, how far we have to go, 
but also knowing how God is leading us and building us up, particularly by using our gifts as we serve one another. Let me just ask by way of closing then, how are you, each of you, using your gifts to build up the body of Christ? If you are not, I suggest that you take some time in prayer and discern what are the gifts that God has given me and how can I use them to help the church reach full maturity, to build unity, to help the church not, not to look at me and think I'm great, but to look at Christ and get closer and closer to walking in the kind of maturity that even he had. That's the goal, according to Paul here. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words that remind us that even if we feel worthless, you've given us a gift. That what we need to do is discern what it is, that your spirit will help us do that, that our fellow believers will help us do that, that the passions and desires you put inside us, if they are rooted in glorifying you, will help us to do that. And Lord, we pray that our church would defy the 80-20 rule, that instead of a few people doing all of the work, we would find many people desiring to lift up the name of Jesus, to serve one another, to help others grow in their faith, knowing that it is such a great reward to watch that happen, to know that we are glorifying God, and to fulfill this purpose which we've been given, each of us. Lord, I pray for everyone here who is gifted as an evangelist and spreading the gospel. I pray for boldness for them, and that in watching them in their boldness, we would be inspired also to preach the gospel, proclaim the truth of who Jesus is to all the world. I pray for everyone who, who has been sent out we pray for our uh, foreign missionaries especially, Lord. We pray for Rick and Anita Gutierrez. We pray for Jenny Pazinski. We pray for all of those uh, who are American Baptists in our family and, and every missionary who is now out on the mission field, Lord, that you would begin to give those who have not seen a great return on their investment more and more of an affirmation of the work they're doing, that they are making a difference. Lord, that you would just fill them with the knowledge and the, the peace that you are at work. And when you are at work, it never returns void. Lord, I pray for all those who are gifted with the gift of prophecy, whether uh, something like Spurgeon being able to cut right to the quick of what someone's sin is so that they can more easily lead them to the cross, or someone who stands up in the face of uh, injustice and idolatry and all the rest and says this is wrong and, and brings the truth boldly into the public square or here into the congregation when we need to hear it. Lord, I pray that you would give them a fire in their bones. We pray, Lord, for those who are pastors and elders here, that you would give us a desire to serve you and in every decision, every discussion, every act of service, Lord, we would be looking to lift you up, not to accomplish a, a checklist or anything like that. Lord, I pray for all of those who are called and gifted as teachers, that you would remind them uh, that even when we don't see the fruit of our labor, we are often planting seeds that will, uh, years and years and decades down the road, bring in a harvest. Lord, we know of many situations in which people have pointed back to teachers, Sunday school teachers or school teachers or whoever, who many, many years earlier, unbeknownst to them, had planted seeds that completely changed the course of their life. Lord, I pray for those who teach children, those who teach adults, all of those who teach within the church of Jesus Christ, that you would give them a desire to uh, renew their efforts, renew their zeal, that it would not be ho-hum, that 
talking about these topics and sharing them with people who want to learn would be food for their souls. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.